You're listening to the Elvis Ultimate Fan Channel Podcast, the channel that is devoted 100% to the life and career of the biggest selling recording artist of all time, with your host, Steve Francis. Yes, indeed. Welcome to another episode from Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel Podcast. Today's subject is Mr. Marty Lacker, a member of Elvis's famed Memphis Mafia and his best man at Elvis's 1967 wedding to Priscilla. He went to school with Elvis, and that's how they met. Now, I'm delighted to say I have on the line his daughter, Sherry Lacker. Hi, Sherry. How are you doing, Steve? Good morning, or good it's afternoon, a, should I say for you. <laughs> it's a pleasure talking to you. Uh, it's, it's my pleasure, believe me. And uh, tell me, what's the weather like in Memphis uh, this morning? Uh, it's rather chilly. We just had a very unusual situation. We had a bit of snow yesterday on the ground. It started uh, the evening previous, and... Uh, we had had enormous amounts of rain, but we got blessed with a few snowflakes. So, uh, it's, yeah. Just- um, I actually, uh, saw, uh, that on the Graceland cam on uh, live stream. I, I look oh, at that every night and, and yeah. you can see, you can see the flakes on, 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 in, in front of the mansion. Yeah. It was the kind that it's the best kind. It didn't stick to the roads or cause many, you know, traffic problems. It's on the roofs and the ugly wood piles and that kind of thing. So <laughs> a bit of decoration is how we put it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we've got a, uh, quite a big storm rolling in here at the moment in Ireland, uh, by the name of Kira. So I'm, I've got my fingers crossed that we don't lose power and lose the interview, you know? Yeah, I hope not as well. I hope you all stay safe and uh, it'll blow through without any damage. I have no plans about going out anyway. I always say <laughs> just yeah, unless unless it's an absolute necessary, don't go out in it, you know. Yeah, well, yes, flying shrapnel and tree limbs and such can uh, put a dent in your day, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> a dent in anything. A dent yes, in your head. In your head, yeah, you will have a new good ornament. Okay, so um, can you just, uh, for the listeners, uh, tell me a little bit about your, yourself and your mom and your dad and, of course, Elvis? Okay, how we all came to be, as it were. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. Um, how it all started was my uh, dad, Marty Lacker, um, was born in Brooklyn, the Bronx, and it was getting kind of rough uh territory up there in the times uh, that he was growing up in the 50s and so about uh, i think it was 1952 uh about the age of 15 um his parents uh, brought him down to memphis and the reason they chose memphis is because his sister had married and already come to memphis and so that they felt that was a good place to start and so he ended up in Memphis at the age of 15, uh, first went to Central High School, and he had a bit of a New York attitude, I'll put, and so did his father. So he ended up being, shall we say, transferred to Hume's High School. And, <laughs> and that was, of course, as everybody knows, that's where Elvis was. Exactly. It's a, I think uh, he may have been a senior when my dad was a uh sophomore well here they have four high school years and so that would have been the second year of high school for my dad the fourth year and final year for elvis um thereabouts um i'm not quite sure on that but it's close enough and anyway so my father dressed you know kind of wild he wore the pistol pocket pants and the flipped up collars and his hair was long and in a 
uh, style, sort of like Elvis wore, but they didn't know each other at that time. It's just, it was the style of the more hip kids. Um, most people down here were, you know, wearing buzz cuts and close cropped hair and, and very straight laced looking. And so they so, both. So kind of, uh, yeah, 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 sorry to cut you off there, but Marty and Elvis kind of stood out together. Exactly. Because that's, that, that's what always everybody always says about Elvis is he, he stood out, you know, in, in, at Hume's. Right. Yeah. And so they just kind of they didn't really, you know, run up to each other and say, hey, dude, you know, you dress like me. It was one of those situations <laughs> where the other kids would say, hey, you're going to outdo Presley today or, or you know, at, you know, Elvis would, you know, nod his head or daddy would nod his head in the hall. You know, they just kind of they knew of each other because of their style. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, so, and they both had football, a love of football in common. And, um, they would, he would see Elvis at the football games, et cetera. So they knew of each other and they kind of went the same circles. And then probably not a, a well-known fact, my father was also, um, a fan of African-American church, you know, the gospel music. All um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then there was a place called East Trig Baptist church over here that he and a friend had gone to one night when they were in high school. And lo and behold, Elvis was there too. And as we all know, it's a well-known fact that Elvis did uh, gravitate toward, you know, that type of music. And he would go to the Ellis auditorium and various church and listen to the artist and, and the choir singing. So they would see each other in that capacity as well too. Well, to make a long story short, my dad went into the Army in 54. Um, that's about the same time that Elvis had his first radio play. And I believe it was That's All Right, Mama. But um, yeah, that's, was, that's uh, right. Yeah, That's All Right, yeah. Mama. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Daddy did get to hear that on the radio before he went into the Army. You know, so it was like when he heard it was Elvis singing that, he and his buddy kind of looked at each other and like, wow, you know, who would ever thought, you know, the library worker from Humes would have, you know, <laughs> catapulted to that uh, status. But he went to the Army, as I said, in 54. He was in there about three years. So when he came home, that was about 1957, 58, somewhere right in there, and as you know, Elvis ended up going to the army in '60, I believe, didn't he? Or was it? Uh, he uh, he was yeah he was drafted in March 1958. 58, right? So their army careers kind of you know crisscrossed. So I think it was right before Elvis went in to the army that they actually reacquainted, and and he and George Klein went up to the house and. Yeah, I, I actually, uh, I actually have a note here that say that says that Marty started going up to Graceland in 1957. So just about, uh, uh, just a little under a year before Elvis right. drafted in March. Right. Thank you for clarifying that because I, I'm not good at all of these dates, but I try my best. It's hard. Oh yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, to keep them all in your head, and. Yeah. Um, so it was in that vicinity, yeah. And so he joined in on the festivities, like, you know, you read about the fairgrounds, the skating, the, you know, up at Graceland, hanging out. So they did get to know each other and become friends at that point. And then, of course... I remember, uh, I remember Marty saying he was quite impressed that Elvis remembered him when he first went up with George. 
Yes, I uh, heard him talk about that too. And uh, it, he had asked, uh, you know, how he remembered him. He said, I just remember him school. He was, you know, kind of tooling around on his own by himself. And, you know, he dressed a lot like I did. And so I did notice him. And, yeah, Daddy was impressed, you know, with that. Also, yeah. um, I had forgotten, too, that uh, previous to that, previous to their meeting and Daddy going into, um, I believe it was before he we went into the service. I, you may have to correct me here on the timeline as well. Okay. Um, I know that uh, Daddy had gone into a training program for a store here in Memphis. It was a department store called Shaneberg's, and it was over at that uh, Lamar shopping center, and there was a Katz drugstore just behind. It was like a little shopping center in the 50s, and that's where Elvis held that first flatbed um, concert in the parking lot of the Katz drugstore, and my dad was managing... Uh, or learning to manage a store. So they had seen each other before that too. Uh, that was before, I guess that was right after daddy came back from the army and then before he and George went up. So, you know, that was another kind of, it was, it was almost like their paths crossed so many times it was meant to be or something. Yes. Yes. It was was fate. Yeah. Um, And, uh, when, when did, uh, when did your father meet Patsy? Who was to become his wife? Okay, that was uh, in the interim while Elvis was in the army. Um, he had, while my dad was in the army, he had started being a radio operator, and he decided that he wanted to go into radio. So he went to Knoxville to uh, take a class in radio broadcasting. My mom lived in Knoxville, grew up there, and they met. Uh, while he was in Knoxville, after he took the class and all, he worked for a local um, radio station. He became a disc jockey on one of the evening programs on the radio, and he also uh, ran a little record shop, and their paths crossed, and uh, that's where they met, and they lived over where, I don't know if you know about Foot, American football or not, but they lived over where the Tennessee Falls, University of Tennessee, uh, the track right. is now. <laughs> so, oh, uh, they, yeah, they tore down the apartments they lived in. But anyway, that's how they met. And then I was born in 60. And so Daddy continued to be on the disc jockey route. You know, disc jockeys move around quite a lot um, yeah. in America. And so... We ended up in Memphis, and he went to work for WHBQ, and that's where, you know, he reacquainted with George Klein, and they worked together there. And so when Elvis came back from the Army, that's how he ended up going back up. And then Mama had her first encounter with Elvis at that point. And the funny thing about it is you hear about all these teenage girls that would, you know, watch Ed Sullivan. Mama said she wasn't nuts and pulling her hair and all that stuff, she said. But they <laughs> they snuck out of church uh, when, he, when Elvis made the appearance on Ed Sullivan's show. They had she and her friend had snuck out of uh, church early so they could go watch Elvis. And. <laughs> So I once po- you know, posed the question, I said, did you ever in your wildest dreams 
compare sitting there watching him on TV and then now look back and think that you ended up being, you know, one of his closest friends in the circle. She said, it boggles the mind. She said, I just, you know, I can't even wrap my mind around it or, or express, yeah. you know, it must have it. been it, it must have been unreal for her when she you know she finally gained that access to Elvis personally. Yeah. Know, it must have been it must have been like a dream for her. It it was. I mean, my mom was never the kind like I say that was one of those hair pulling you know fans that you know no. just oh God I'm giddy I'm going to Elvis. She just you know she knew he was a big star and everything and she said when she drove up the driveway she said you know because they came from a blue collar you know. Mill family. And so when she saw that, she said she just, you know, kind of clammed up and got quiet. You know, her eyes were bigger than everything else at that point. (laughs) uh, So anyway, I asked her about that first evening. You know, I had a chance to talk to her before she passed about it. And she said uh, that first night that, you know, she saw Anita Wood and, uh, you know, a lot of the guys that were there early on. And she said there was just a bunch of people, you know, sitting around in the living room talking like normal people, you know. And she said she, she saw Elvis come down and she said, my goodness, he is pretty. <laughs> so, um, Yeah, her- now, I, I, um, a lot of people say that um, even without seeing him walk in, you just knew that he'd walked in the room. Because yeah. he carried he carried such a presence with him. Yeah, if that, if that makes sense, you know, like I say, I, without even yeah. seeing him walking in the room, you knew he was walking in the room. <laughs> yeah, it's it is it is kind of like that. I don't know if it was a situation where, you know, people would say, "Oh, you know, there's Elvis," or the whole dynamic of the room would change. But he did. I mean, he filled up a room when he came in. You know, it's. I can't describe it either. It's like it was something special. It wasn't, you know, to the point where it was like, you know, holy presence or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was just he had a a vibe about him that was just, you know, bigger than life. Yeah, yeah. I've also heard people say as well that the the movies and uh, still photographs don't do his looks justice. Now, if that's the case... He must have been devastatingly handsome. I've been asked that too, and he was he was beautiful. He was in person. He was more maybe it's because you could see the real person and his personality enhanced it. But he was a gorgeous man, and if I you know I do dare say in person he was even more pretty than he was. Yeah, yeah. Well, this I mean not not very often could you call a man beautiful looking. But yeah. it does it, it does it does apply to Elvis without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and that he, and that comes from a, a, a that comes from a straight male. I mean, I'm a straight male, and I can see <laughs> that he was beautiful. You you know you you can't imagine how many straight men have you know stood there with their mouths open like, damn, he looks good. Excuse my language. I'm sorry. Oh no, 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 that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Um, I remember a story as well. We'll touch on it later the 1969 memphis sessions one of the yeah. musicians the first the first night that elvis walked into the uh, recording session uh he said uh, he was more beautiful than some women i've seen <laughs> yes that was the absolute <laughs> truth and i will attest to that 
And in, 16, <laughs> in that particular period of time, the 68, 69, uh, probably up to 72, Elvis was in his prime and he had grown into his looks and he was a beautiful man. He was. I, I would was, I would most I would most definitely agree with your time frame there from nineteen sixty eight to seventy two. He yeah. was just like, My gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that beautiful human being. I know it. And you know how they say, you know, people grow into their looks or they, they hit their prime. I believe that's what happened, you know, both physically and musically. Um he, that was his sweet spot. Did he ever uh, allude himself to his looks? You know, did he oh, ever yeah. know just how beautiful he was? Oh, he did. And I will be using uh, swear words. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> because yeah. if I quote him, uh, you could often hear people talk or hear people say, he'd be looking in the mirror and he'd go, Damn, I'm a good-looking son of a bitch. You know, like that. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if you want to use that or not, but that's that's almost a direct quote from what I. Yeah, we can use that. We can use yeah. that. <laughs> I forget yeah. I'm talking to Ireland, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so um, 1960, uh, Elvis is back with a bang, um, mm -hmm. and he starts he starts making movies. Right. And is that, uh, if I remember rightly, not long after Elvis started making movies again, um, your father, Marty, went on the payroll uh, in probably October, November of 1961 uh, when they were making Kid Galahad. Exactly. Yes, that is true. Um, he had, at that point uh, where we were talking earlier about him being a disc jockey, and he went up to visit, and Elvis asked him to, you know, come along with him, and he said, well, i got to talk to my my pet i mean my wife you know i have a daughter and so he talked to my mama. mama said yeah you know if you want to try it you know and so he did and um you know that's the beginning of it on the payroll but you know it went way beyond after he left the payroll too but that's that was his beginning to be in the inner circle so to speak or or the memphis mafia Although they yeah. had not been coined yet, so. No, it was a, a a year or two after that, I think, when they were in Vegas. Yeah, and 60, the, 60, 62. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the limousine pulled up outside uh, one of the hotels was the Aladdin or the Riviera, and they all got out, and they were all wearing mohair suits and dark glasses, and somebody shouted, hey, is that the Mafia? And it yeah. kind of stuck. That's the Memphis Mafia. Yeah, it was a reporter. They had gone over to, uh, I think they, I think Dad had said that they were filming one of the movies and had taken a break. And there was two instances that they all went over. One was uh, on a birthday, January 8th, Elvis's birthday, to see the opening of Johnny Ray's, uh, the singer, American singer Johnny Ray, had opened uh, his show over there. And they had gone on his birthday in 62, I believe. And, uh, but, you know, there was a couple of times they went there. And you're right, there was a uh, reporter, supposedly for the Las Vegas Sun, who had shouted that out. Yeah, like, look, Elvis is here. And he brought the mafia with him from Memphis. And they kind of, you know, coined that phrase yeah. from then on. It just stuck. I think the boys uh, enjoyed the notoriety of it all. 
Uh, I imagine they did at some point. I'm sure it certainly got them in places they wouldn't have ordinarily been able to get into. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. you know, and it afforded them, you know, my dad would have been the first to admit, he said that part of his life, you know, he would have never uh, have been able to be in some of the places that he was. I mean, he was a disc jockey, so musically he would have met, you know, a lot of famous people over the years, but nothing on the capacity that he did with Elvis. Now, we, we, we know uh, with hindsight that the movies became a, a chore for Elvis The after the mid-60s, probably from about 1964, after Viva Las Vegas, and the, the next one was Kissing Cousins. The quality went down quite sharply. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably speaking to your father, it was a lot of fun. Those years were a lot of fun, no doubt. Uh, yeah, they, you know, the, not necessarily the filming part of it, but when they, you know, the boredom part of it, and then they would have to be creative to alleviate the boredom in between the shot setups and stuff, you know, and on the road, they would have a blast, you know, they would drive out in the motorhome, or they would play practical jokes on each other on the sets in between shots, and you know, there. I think that probably may be when their sense of camaraderie may have forged even tighter. Now, I've never heard anybody say that, but just as you know, observing over the years and and now looking back to see what other people have said that were in the group, um, I think that's what did build that sense uh, of having each other's backs. I've seen some of the uh, home movies that were shot. Um, there's a few that are actually shot when they were driving cross country in Elvis's uh, tour bus. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were kind of play fighting. And then there's another one as well where they're actually in the middle of the desert. Yeah. Uh, so that's obviously another time when yeah. they were traveling either to or from a movie. They seemed to be having a great time. They were, you know, play fighting and Elvis was doing his karate stances and all those sort of things. Yes, I know that one well because I have one of my favorite pictures that I, I made a photograph from that video. Whoever's, whosoever it was, I had still shot. It's my dad and Billy Smith and Elvis and they're just they're all laughing and you know Billy's got his dukes up like he's ready for Elvis you know so yeah it was that's one of my favorite shots there on the side of the road in the desert yeah it must have taken them uh, a few days to go from uh, California to Memphis every time they made a movie I'm not too sure of the timeline, but it must be three or four days. Would it take driving? Yes, I've I've done it a couple of times, not in the mobile home, but we've gone back and forth a couple of times. And if you do a regular eight-hour day of driving, eight to ten hours, it takes about four days, three and a half days. Now, sometimes, depending on Elvis's mood, they might drive three hours and stop at a hotel. Um, yeah, you know, it may take them even longer. Or if they needed to get home or whatever, you could drive straight, you know, 48 hours and get back. But it is a normal trip is about four days. Uh, now, I, I, ju- I just want to touch on something which can be quite emotive to some people. This is probably the time when the pep pills and so forth probably took uh, took hold <laughs> more not so much took hold I, I don't mean that but they become more commonplace because of 
you know, the, 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 the pressure they were under to, to get to the movies and do the movies and so forth. Would that, would that, uh, have you, would you like to say anything about that? Well, I would say it certainly lent itself to, uh, a necessary use of it if they had to do something. Um, I'm not sure that that in and of itself would have been the only catalyst. I think that, you know, say, for instance, they go film during the day and they're there a full day. And then if they decide to go to Vegas and see a show and then they're up all night seeing a show and then they got to get back, you know, for filming, I'm sure that takes something to sleep, takes takes something to get up. You know, that probably did, you know, set that in motion for higher use. And plus, you have to remember, we were almost into what I would call the hippie days, the bohemian days of, uh, you know, drug use and experimentation. So it was also a cultural thing, you know, that people were using. No, uh, I, I just want to stress, obviously, at the time as well, there was nothing illegal in this because they were all uh, they were prescribed. All prescribed, exactly. prescribed. Mm-hmm. And in, in the 50s and 60s, uh, the dangers weren't known either of amphetamine use. They were they were regularly given. They were actually they were given to Elvis in the army as well in, in 1958, 1960 to stay awake. Right. Yes. So exactly. this, this, is, this, this was commonplace. Right. And the stigma, as you say, was not there of street drugs and that kind of thing. I mean, it was not street drugs because even if you look back in the history, and I'm sure in UK as well, but in America, it was like they even referred to Valium as mother's little helper. You know, I, I stress that most housewives during that time, if they had a nerve problem, their, you know, doctor would, you know, hand them a prescription for Valium, which was commonplace. Yes. So you have um, to take in the culture as well, you know, in the t- in the time. Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to touch on that. Um, now, you were you were born in 1960. So right. what have what would have been your um, first memories of Elvis? Oh my goodness! Well, it's probably climbing up and down in his lap. Um, I the Of the situation, my first memories are, I can remember being on a football field. I didn't know it was a football field. I just thought we were outside playing. And I I have this mental snapshot of all these very tall people around me. And I kept running after a football. Well, what that ended up being is my mom and dad had me at the, you know, how they used to play touch football over at uh, Graceland School around the corner from Graceland. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, and so I kept trying to run after the ball, and so my mom had to pick me up and hold me. And strangely enough, that's my first memory, and supposedly that is very much backed up by what, you know, Billy Smith's wife, Joe Smith, who's like, you know, they're my second parents almost. Uh, she said that's the first time she ever met me. I was, you know, like still a toddler. And she said, yeah, your mama had to keep you from running out on the field and getting trampled because you kept wanting to play. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my first memory. And then my first, you know, of Elvis being in it, 
I used to have these plastic bongos that I'd carry around with me or uh, always had little musical instruments. I don't know if it was his influence or, or you know, familial in- influence, but uh, I would have some little instrument in my hand and I would climb up in his lap and climb back down and climb back up in his lap. And mom always told me, he said, uh, look, little baby, he said, if you want to sit in my lap, you can sit in my lap. He said, but if you're going to run up and down, you're going to have to get down. So you know, he, loved, he loved kids and babies, but he just he couldn't stand the up and down business. So. I'm uh, I'm sure a lot of our female listeners are quivering now, thinking about <laughs> sitting in Elvis's lap. <laughs> yeah, I've I've had some people approach me after I've said some things like that and was like, oh my god, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so yeah, it's in hindsight, it is kind of wild to think of you know, that lifetime. So. Now, while um, Marty was working for Elvis, you were, you, st- you uh, lived in Graceland? Uh, during part of it, yes. Yeah, my uh, sister Angie was born in 65 and we, on her birth certificate, she's actually the only other person that has that address on her birth certificate other than Lisa Marie. But we were living there from 60. The end of 63, I believe, right at the beginning of 64, uh, not long after my brother had been born. And That's Mark. Mark yes, yeah. Mark. Yeah, it's me, then Mark, and then my sister Angie. And um, so it was me and Mark. And so 60, like I say, end of 63, um, probably to maybe early to mid 65 my sister was born in february so it was after that so probably mid mid 65 you would have um, seen quite a bit of uh, priscilla while elvis was oh yeah. away oh yeah she she basically you know well she stayed out in her room we lived in the part they call the annex now which was the garage that was converted uh yeah. into a little room and she would stay out there with us quite a lot. And if my memory serves me correctly, she came to live, I believe, 63, 62, 63. She came to live at Graceland. And uh, so she would stay out there in the apartment with Mama because all the guys would be out of town, you know, and it, other than the maids and, and Grandma, you know, as people know her as Dodger. Um, yes you know, would be basically the only people in the house, you know, and the secretaries out in the office, of course. So we all kind of hung out together there. And now, uh, I, th- I think the uh, most people were uh, told that uh, Priscilla was actually uh, staying with Dee and uh, Vernon, uh, Elvis's father on Dolan. But I think most of the time she was in Grayson, wasn't she? She lived at Graceland. She didn't. She didn't live. If she ever lived with Vernon and Dee, it must have been right when she first got there. Because no, she. You know that's a myth. She lived at Graceland. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and and um, let's move now to uh, the wedding, uh, Elvis and Priscilla's wedding in May of 1967. Were you were you present at that wedding? I know. Obviously, for people that don't know, Marty was joint best man along with uh, Joey Esposito. Yes, he was. Uh, no, I was not. At that point, I was only seven. And um, I believe 
yeah, my my younger siblings were, you know, way too young. We were yeah. in, I can't remember if we were there. I know we went to Vegas in 67, but I don't think it was at the same time because we stayed at the Aladdin Hotel, which they did get married at. Yes. But we stayed in the room because at that point, Las Vegas was not at all conducive to children. It was, you know, adult playland back then. Yeah. And uh, so, no, we, uh, to my knowledge, we weren't even in Vegas at that point. Um, but like I, I said, if I remember but, rightly, um, Elvis and Priscilla threw another party at Graceland later on for the people that couldn't make it. Yes, they did. And as a matter of fact, I believe that's the one that my mom attended. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and a lot of people, you know, as you know, probably, I'm sure, and your listeners probably know that um, that created quite a rift between some of the older guys that had been there for a long time. Particularly Red. Yes, very much so. In fact, and, Red went away. He went away for a while, didn't he? He didn't yeah, come back he, until about 1969-70, I believe. Right. He left the entire, you know, organization completely. And and I can't say that I blame him, you know. Um, some of the things now, you know, if, yeah, I don't know how far you want to go with this, but some of the things that people have read in Priscilla's book are absolutely untrue. Um, okay about the setup of the wedding and who was there and why certain people were there. Um, but the major consensus is that basically Colonel Parker had set up certain parameters and they had daddy and Joe take care of a lot of the things that were to be set up and put in place. And that's as probably as far as I'll go because I don't want to step on anybody's toes or anything. But yeah, well, it was always my understanding that Colonel Parker had a big say in who was there and who wasn't. Yeah, it 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 seemed as though it was a PR circus from you know hmm. afar. So. And shortly after the wedding, um, Marty ceased to be one of the memphis mafia didn't he uh let's see yes i believe so i believe his separation notice was 67 or 68 and to fill in the blanks though in that i don't know if you want to kind of illuminate what you know went on during that time is that once he married priscilla uh he had just purchased previous to that the circle g ranch and so all you know everybody was involved in that too and my dad did work down there and alan fortis managed the ranch for him uh one of the other memphis mafia along with a couple yes. of guys and uh, some of the guys and their wives had trailers and we didn't actually have a trailer down there because elvis had just bought uh some land where uh, my dad had built our house and it wasn't that far from the ranch so that's why he would go down there to go to work every day. But um, we lived up in our house and we were in school already because, you know, we ended up, we were the oldest children, me and Mark and then Danny Smith and then Angie, my sister, and then Joey Smith. 
was kind of the the ages of the children. So that's why Mama and Joe, if I sidestep here for a second, that's why yeah, Mama and yeah. Joe Smith became such good friends because in the early days before Elvis married Priscilla, it was sort of like, um, well, as there's a book, you know, by my mom and dad, Portrait of a Friend, there's a chapter in there where my mom starts and it's called uh, Wife Was a Four-Letter Word. <laughs> yes, yes. And, I I, uh, I was going to come to that book later yeah. on, yeah, but uh, yeah. since you mentioned it, yeah. Well, we can, you know, go back to it. But anyway, that was just a side item I, you know, wanted to tell you about. that. That's why they became so close and we became so close. We're right. like family now because people the wives and then especially if you had children in the early days but once priscilla and elvis married and she had a child things became a little more shall we say even keeled uh as far as who could do what you know yes yes but I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just no, no, no. You're okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So, so as we say, 1967. Even though Marty was no longer a member of the Memphis Mafia per se, he still continued his friendship with Elvis. He still continued to go to, oh, to yeah. travel with him. He still continued to go to Graceland. Yeah, and how that came about actually is once they sold the ranch, uh, and this keep in mind this was after the last movie. It was kind of this convergence of change. And um, they had done the last movie, or right at the last movie, they did, I believe, Clambake, and then another one right at the time he bought Circle G. And then, I guess, Change of Habit was right after that, but he had sold the ranch in 68, 67, 68. And so there was no longer the ranch to work, um, and Elvis was no longer doing movies. And he had not yet done that 69 comeback special or 68 comeback special. I'm sorry. Yeah, that would have so, been uh, in June of 1968. It was taped in June 1968, broadcast in December 1968. Right. So there was this glitch of time where, you know, Vernon was getting nervous there. He was still spending money, but there was no, you know, other than residual income, I'm sure. But, you know, there was no active work going on so they decided that they were going to lay some of the guys off and my dad had already started making connections in the music world and had decided he was going to get into the memphis music business so when it came to that point he said look you know some of these guys don't have anything to go to he said i'm getting ready to go you know work for such and such um you know let me go ahead and leave the payroll and that'll be one less guy that has to lose his job. So he separated from them on the payroll, like you said, and he went on to start his music, um, Memphis and, Music. And, and that's when he linked up with the uh, Chips down in the Memphis recording, uh, American Recording Studio? Well, that's when he became familiar with him. He first went to a company called Pepper Tanner. And yes. Had, yeah, had started out as a jingle company. And they ended up uh, having their own record label and promoting artists. That's what Daddy's forte became was uh, what they call A&R. It's artist and repertoire and yeah. promotions. And I don't know if you know the American singer Rita Coolidge. Um, oh, yes. I've heard of Rita. Yeah. yeah. Well, he actually discovered her. He's the first one that brought her in and had her recorded uh, at Pepper Tanner. 
And so, you know, that got him into the Memphis music scene big time, you know, through all his connections. And he became, uh, you know, he started the first Grammy chapter in Memphis. He started the first Memphis Music Awards. So he, you know, had stuff to go to where the other ones didn't. And in that interim, he did become uh, acquainted with Chip's moment. And then he did transfer over to work with uh, Chip's at American Studios. And uh, and the story goes that uh, in January of 1969, uh, Marty was in uh, Graceland one evening and Elvis and Felton Jarvis, I believe, yes. uh, if my uh-huh. memory serves me right, were talking yes. about uh, the up and coming recording sessions in Nashville. And Marty was shaking his head and Elvis says, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he just said, well, I, I wish just once you'd try chips. And Elvis said, well, mm-hmm. maybe I will sometime. And then they right. said, come on, let's, let, let's go and eat. And, and Marty says, uh, I'm not hungry. And then mm-hmm. uh, Felt, Felton comes out a couple of minutes later and says, Elvis wants to talk to you. And that's when he, he asked uh, Marty to set, set up uh, the, the sessions with Chips instead of Nashville. Exactly. That's exactly how it happened. Um, so, for, for if, you know, we are in grateful uh, <laughs> the, the way that Marty set that up because we all know just how successful those sessions were oh, if, it hadn't been for, if, it, if it hadn't been for Marty those sessions probably wouldn't have happened well I wouldn't think so you know there were a couple of the other guys that claimed that they had uh, you know ends with chips or whatever but I don't think they would have ever been forceful enough to risk you know making Elvis mad and my dad had just you know he because he had spread his wings into the Memphis music business, he knew what he was talking about. You know, he knew what it could be. And I don't, yeah, I don't think some of the other ones would have ventured out. Now, other people in the past, a couple of the other guys, which I will not name, you know, because everybody has families, uh, took credit for that for a long time. But now finally, you know, it has come to light that indeed daddy was the one that was responsible for that. Now we all know what a great success those sessions were. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. in the in the ghetto, Kentucky range, Suspicious Minds, great great big hits for Elvis. Right. Any day now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any day now. That's another great one. But I, there was rumors that um, Colonel Parker wasn't too happy with the way it was panning out, and he happened to he said to Tom Diskin, who was his right hand man, you know, you come away from there and you let Elvis fall on his ass. Exactly. So, and uh, he did anything but fall on his ass. So that right. just goes to show how, uh, you know, Parker wasn't maybe the manager that everybody tries to say he was. Yeah. And, you know, what's a shame about that is that could have been the perfect time for Elvis to start taking more reins of his own decision. However, I think. Elvis deferred to his father a lot, and I believe his father was scared of everything going away in an instant. You know, should yes. there be someone falling on their ass? <laughs> and, <laughs> um, you know, or the repercussions, because, you know, as we saw when he tried to do Starsborn or, or go to Europe, Parker, or he, I think he even tried to fire Parker one time, Elvis did. And, he did it in, in the mid-70s. Right, and they went into a room, and when they came out, Elvis acquiesced to everything the man said. And I think because Parker's, um, how, how do, 
way of dealing. Um, I mean, he could BS, you know what I'm saying? In other words, yeah. holding things. He knew how to get what he wanted done, done. And I think he had that hold over Elvis. And it's a shame, you know, that was one missed opportunity there after American Studios recording. Because as an illustration, he, Daddy also got him to record at Stax on the net, you know, one of the future albums. Yeah, and, that's right. But he didn't get as good of music choices. So RCA or Diskin or Colonel or somebody, I would have to, you know, look into who did that. But they had control of the song choices. And even though they were at, you know, the legendary Stack Studios, he was still bridled by that nasty <laughs> list of song choice. And so yeah, I, think I mean, the the, the, uh, the the sorry to cut you off there, but the, the standard yeah. of the uh, songs in stacks in 1973 was nowhere near the standard uh, that they were in 69. Right. And so it could have, you know, it could have been, but it wasn't. And I think that just deflated Elvis's balloon and he just went back to the, you know, hey, let's follow the, the you know, regular path here. This is what I, they think, I think I think it's, it's fair to say that it was Parker was responsible for Elvis not returning to American. I believe he he put something in in Elvis's head about chips that wasn't exactly true, and he never yeah. he never he only he only he only ever recorded uh, one time in in in, uh, in Chips's studio. That was January and February of '69, and that was it. Exactly right. I agree with you because uh, I do recall something of that nature where, you know. It, it was always about, well, whose name's bigger or who's the boss or, you know, that's that's the same excuse they use with Star is Born. You know, when Streisand wanted, you know, to have Elvis do the Chris Christopherson part. Uh, yeah. Colonel got into the, you know, semantics of whose name's first and whose name's bigger and how much you get paid and, you know, a percentage <laughs> of this and that. So, unfortunately... Very unfortunately. So on, on the back of those uh, sessions, uh, he was on the crest of a wave, and then he made his return to live performances in August of 1969. Yeah, the the, the uh, come back to the Vegas. Yeah, the international. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That uh, that's when it all started. And again, if you look at him in those videos that exist from that particular those performances there on the first end. That is just amazing. I mean, for a man who hasn't, other than that one performance with the comeback special being taped, to get up in front of a live audience after that amount of time and put on that kind of show, that's that was just amazing. I know it was nerve-wracking for Elvis because Steve Binder, who did the 68 comeback special, uh, mm -hmm. there was... a. a Elvis actually said to Steve just before he was due to go on, I can't go on. Yeah, well, that's, so that's he was, pretty he much was, point yeah. And uh, Steve said, I don't care what you're going to do. You're, you're going to go out there, even if you just go out there and say hello and then come back out uh, into the dressing room. But, of course, we all know now that, I mean, you, you can actually see on some of the uh, outtakes, his, his hands are actually shaking. He's that nervous. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, he, yeah, he, 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 you know, he didn't know, even realize if anybody was going to remember him. 
Right. He had all those emotional misgivings and, you know, the whole thing that anybody that quote unquote is going to make a comeback. But, you know, he he would get nervous before he'd go out just about every time. I mean, even the Aloha special, you can tell, you know, when he stepped out on the stage that he was kind of okay, you know, because he broke a lot of, you know, barriers he was the first to do a lot of things. And so he didn't really have anybody else's, you know, lead to follow. I remember him saying in uh, the interview he conducted for Elvis on tour in 1972 that he never got over stage fright. He went through it every time. Yeah, I don't doubt that because you could look at him, um, even in person, you could kind of tell his, you know, the way he would hold himself for the first, you know, if you're familiar with how he moves and, and, acts in person and then you know you could tell that his Mm. body language was a little different you know for the first and then he would relax into it so you would have seen elvis live yes i finally did when let's see he came to memphis um i can't remember if i saw him in vegas first or if i saw him in memphis first um I'm not good on the years on that. I went to Vegas in 72 and I can't, I know he came to Memphis in 75, but there was another one before that. I mean, 76. There was another one before that, that we had first seen him at. There was a concert in 74 in Memphis, which they actually recorded and put out as an album. uh, March. That may have been it. So I imagine it must've been Vegas where I saw him first. Um, August of 72 or three. Yeah. And it was amazing. I mean, you know, I was, uh, to the point, I think it was 72, uh, because yeah, I was 12, no 13. I don't know. But anyway, I'm gonna sit here and argue with myself for 15 (laughs) minutes. But the main, the main thing is, is you saw him live. (laughs) I did. I did every night for a week and uh, since I, I must have been 13 because I got to go to the midnight show and it just thrilled the stuffing out of me because you know I had never seen that before and I'm like my gracious you know yeah. it, I, that that's not the guy I know at home you know or at the yeah. house or yeah. whatever you know and uh, because we would still go up there even after you know we left from living there in 65 we would go when they were in town we would go up weekly i mean you know three four times a week when they were in town yeah so it was like going to your uncle's house or you know just it was just a family you know but but it's interesting what you say there about you know this isn't the same guy that i know when you saw him on stage (laughs) this isn't the same and i'm reminded of uh, the uh, press conference he gave prior to appearing in madison square garden and he mm-hmm. says, uh, it's very hard to live up to an image. The image is one thing and a human being is another. Exactly. Uh, that's always struck. That's always struck me. So obviously there was there was two Elvises. There was. He always had that. I don't want to use the. Uh, and there was a style about him that he had his this vibe. But when he was in front of people, it was notched up. But when he was on stage, it was like, wow, you know, it was like turned up all guns blasting and it's like you know if if you know your brother or your sister you know sings around the house and then you know all of a sudden they get up on stage and you're like 
good Lord, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> you know? So it was, there was a dichotomy of these two personas. I mean, as time went on, I think Elvis believed more of his own hype. If that's, you know, kind of a way to put it, he never got to the point where you, you know, just didn't want to be around him, that kind of thing. You know, I, what went on behind closed doors, I don't know. But in the general sense of everybody gathering together or whatever, you know, he he still had his little vibe. But, you know, it wasn't anything for him, you know, if you wanted to talk to him, for him to sit down in the floor, you know, with the kids cross-legged and talk to him or, you know, have breakfast with Angie, my sister and Lisa you know, so there was this normalcy, just as yeah, he was he was just just a re- just a regular guy. Yeah, I mean, he is regular as Elvis could be. But, yeah, <laughs> well, that's you true. Know, yeah, but uh, yeah, you know, it 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 was this dichotomy, and I'm sure that was very hard to live with. I'm sure it's like having a split personality almost. Now, going in, moving into the sort of latish seventies, Elvis kind of made a few changes. He got rid of uh, Red, uh, mm-hmm. Sonny, and Dave, Dave Hebler. Right. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he kind of paired back on people coming up to the house as well after about uh, yeah, July 1976, didn't he? Right. The Well, July 5th was that concert, or July 6th was the concert, um, that last concert right before Sonny and Dave and Red got dismissed. And he even, you know, even we and George Klein for a period of time and some of the other people were just told, you know, Elvis is making some changes. He just, you know, wants to cut back and have some private time. And we ended up moving to California. Um, I think it was March of 77. Last time I was actually at Graceland was fall of 76 we went up there one more time my mom and i and that was the last time i was ever there and uh yeah we moved to california right after the first of the year and he died eight months later yeah august 16th 77 yeah yeah so let's see have you ever been have you ever been to uh into graceland since elvis passed away? oh yeah yes um we, my dad, mom, and sister and brother, we uh, took Tom Jones through on his tour, and that was very early on. And uh, it, it, over the years, yeah, early on we did quite a few times, and then um, here lately, you know, as we kind of all went on with our lives after that, you know, and just it was almost like that was another lifetime. But mm. since you know. We've come back into the fold, especially as my father got older, um, you know, and people became became familiar with who we were because a long time people didn't even realize we existed, Um, you know, because we just didn't talk about it much. You know, we didn't, you know, stay out there on the circuit much. And so probably I've been there at least 10 times um, in the last probably three years. But. I don't know if I'll go back. I do go to the conventions in in the area and the complex and everything, but they've made so many changes. Yes, sweep, sweeping changes, yeah. Yeah, and they don't, 
you know, I hate to put it this way, but I'm not going to pay to get into a house that I lived in, you know. Mm. Yes. That's quite understandable. Yeah. Just uh, backtracking slightly, the the initial aftermath of Elvis's death must have been devastating for both, um, well, for for you and for Marty and for Patsy. In fact, I remember reading in Portrait of a Friend how we actually found out he got into the car on the 16th of August and he turned turned the ignition and he just heard the announcer say, Lee is dead, L-E-Y. And basically yeah. what the, he to be saying is Elvis Presley is dead and he played one of Elvis's records and your dad said it seemed like an eternity till the end of that record and then he says, as you may have heard, Elvis Presley died today and then when he got home, your mother Patsy was just hysterical yes. that she'd heard on the radio. Yeah, we had, uh, my mom and I were sitting in the living room and my sister was in her back bedroom we were watching something and talking and my sister ran down the hall. She said, they just said Elvis died, mama. She said, no, that's got to be, you know, they're messing around. And she said, no. So we waited till the commercial break got over on our TV and sure enough. And mama just absolutely went to pieces. She just, you know, uh, she just, she couldn't get hold of herself. And, you know, we were all in shock. And I thought, oh, my God, daddy's driving home, you know, because he had worked up. And I said, I'm going to go try and find daddy because if he's pulled over on the side of the road or, you know, I'm just afraid, you know, what shape he'll be in. So we walked outside and it hadn't rained. You know, that old song, it never rains in Southern California. Well, it hadn't in a very long time. And we were standing there talking about which route I was going to take. And it started pouring down rain. And Mama went, oh, God, Elvis is dead and it's raining. And I don't know what that meant. It just in her mind, it clicked, you know, that this is odd. So anyway, I did go and I found him. Well, he was driving. He had just turned on the main road and we pulled over on the side of the road. And I asked him if he'd heard. And he said, yes. And we just, you know, sat there for a minute. I hugged him and we went home and he came home and he locked himself in my brother's room. And I heard him in there just crying like a baby. So The the, the shock had finally hit him. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he called and I think he talked to Billy Smith and they were getting him a flight to go to Memphis, but my mom was in such bad shape, you know, that he didn't want to leave her. And yeah. he said, look, you know, I, I've left her all these years. I'm not leaving her now. Elvis is gone and he'll understand. So he stayed with us. Um, there's nothing really more you can say. It was such a, a devastating shock to everybody i mean everybody knew that elvis wasn't in good health he you know he'd struggled mm-hmm. with his health and and you know if anybody's seen the uh, elvis in concert cbs yeah. television that special, was a real shock for us to see that it really was but even uh, even even that being said it was still it didn't lessen the blow that everybody felt when they heard the news yeah. well you know everybody even the guys everybody always thought well you know we're always safe we're with elvis or you know it was like he was bulletproof and you know 10 feet tall yeah. and uh you know just you know they 
now in hindsight, you know, everybody on the inside knew, like you say, that, you know, he had issues and his issues were going downhill, but no one, I don't think anyone realized it was as bad as it was, as early as it was. I remember Lamar, Lamar Fike was um, in Portland getting ready for the tour that was supposed to start on the 17th. And Colonel Parker broke the news to Lamar and Lamar said, well, you finally did it. You worked him into the ground. Oh, my God. I, I know I Lamar. Was, I, yeah, I, Lamar was very bitter about it. Oh, I'm sure he was. And Lamar was, you know, I actually loved Lamar to death. He was probably one of the most intelligent men I've ever met, but he was one of the most plain spoken and hilarious men I've ever met, too. And he, he had a very... He had a very funny way of saying things, you know, it'd just make yeah. you smile or laugh. I know, or it could cut like a knife. I mean, he would put it in such a way, it's like, man, how in the world did you work that up in your brain, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, but, then, uh, so, so, so the, the next thing really after that was um, Marty and Patsy working on the book uh, Elvis, A Portrait of a Friend. Mm-hmm. with uh, with Leslie Smith. Now I yeah. actually have one of the, one of the, the original uh copies of this. It it's uh, it's quite a big heavy what I would call coffee bo- uh, coffee table book. Oh, you have one of the white ones. Yeah. Yeah, I have one of the white ones and it's signed by uh Marty and Patsy and I have number 526. Oh wow. That is uh, that's fairly rare. <laughs> and it's it's a five of 5000 copies published in June 1979. So mm-hmm. M- Marty must have been working on that book for probably a year, maybe 1978 and then so forth. So that's probably the initial thing he did after Elvis uh, passed away. Well, yes. And, you know, he had talked to he was still in touch with Sonny and Red and stuff and knew, you know, about their book. And then, that, you know, witnessed the aftermath of the book and all that stuff. And, you know, he was this this portrait of a friend, I believe, was either the second book to come out or the third book after maybe Becky Yancey, but it may have been the second book. And by the way, what did, uh, what did Marty think about uh, the boys writing Elvis? What happened? Well, I, I think he supported them because, you know, it, it was their life. It was, especially from somebody on the inside. I mean, that was a heinous act by Vernon. You know, I mean, if, if you think about, all the years and all the risks and all the blood and sweat. And, you know, of course, you know, they did reap rewards and then I'm sure they did show their ass at times, you know, in certain situations, but they saved Elvis's ass. And I know for a fact, I don't know about red, but I mean, as long as red was with him and from the very beginning, what he did, but I know for a fact that Sonny West would have seriously taken a bullet for him. You know, yes. Sonny, Sonny loved him. He loved that man to maybe his own family detriment because, you know, he I think he even went through a bit of a depression, you know, after Elvis died because of not because of the book, but because Elvis was no longer in his life, you know, and there was no way to after someone dies, it's over, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But Red Red was with uh, Elvis from what Hume's High School, 
Right. I think Sonny was probably with him from when he came out of the army in 1960. Now, right. Dave wasn't with him that long. He was sort of like 72 to 76, I think. Right. And, and I mean, Dave was a nice guy. He's still a nice guy. But, I, you know, he didn't have the tenure that the other guys did. And, you know, I think it was mainly in a, a security karate instructor capacity that, so, you know, it was, I'm sure he had a friendship with Elvis, but I mean, it wasn't like the deep rooted family situation with Red and Sonny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Red and Elvis must have been just like brothers. Well, they had to have been. I mean, the way yeah. they went through, but, and I guess that's why Red did what he did. But, you know, people do make their own choices. And sometimes, you know, people do get their own egos. And sometimes, when those egos get scruffed, you know, it's like, screw you, brother, <laughs> you know, but, yeah. uh, you know, I, I have no doubt that they, they loved him dearly. Um, what, what did Marty do uh, post Elvis, apart from obviously a portrait of, portrait of a friend? And he also did a book with Alan, uh, Alan Nash as well, didn't he? And yes. Bill, Bill, Billy Smith and Lamar? Yes. Revelations of the Memphis Mafia. Yeah. That's, that's and, a great book. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, and I'm not just saying this, but a lot of people, I have like almost, well, over 7,000 people in my Facebook group. And every time they start talking, you know, you have probably seen that they will almost call that the Elvis Bible. It's like the go-to compendium. And yeah. I think it's, you know, I think it is. I think it's due to the fact that you've got three men that were basically with him from cradle to grave, you know. Um, Billy, of course, you know, was a little bit younger than Elvis, but from Billy's, you know, first thoughts, he was with Elvis, you know, for, for his first recollections of anything. Elvis was his family, and their families were very close. And then you got Daddy to fill in the places where, you know, Billy couldn't have been there. And Lamar was with him very early on in Germany, et cetera. And then at the very end, Billy and Lamar were there. So between the three of them, it's uh, Alana used a streak of genius the way she just set it up and let each of them talk. So it's like sitting down to, you know, a conversation of the life of Elvis Presley from beginning to end. It, it, it is a great reference book. You know, you can pinpoint certain points and you if there's something particularly you want to find out you just go to that book and and it'll tell you yeah uh you know and you might see them disagree sometimes on stuff or have you know subtle shades of difference um but yeah you know that that's a true picture of life because you know each person has their own you know view on things their own remembrances of things but yet again the common thread through it pretty much jobs with each other, you know, so it shows you, you know, that they loved him and the integrity of them wanting to be truthful about his life. So, so what, what did Marty do um, afterwards, uh, after 1977? Um, as I said, he started, uh, he worked, you know, with the Pepper Tanner. He had the A&R music promotions. He started the Grammy chapter in Memphis um, he then 
after he had his own company, which was called Mempro, you know, that was the management and promotion. And he had one other company after that. So he continued to be in the music business or and kind of segued into the advertising business uh, right after that. So he, he pretty much, you know, until he retired, was in, you know, music and consulting uh, in the entertainment industry. They also did um, the All the King's Men video. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah. Right. With Actually, it was Red, Sonny, Daddy, Lamar, and Billy. So it was all five of those guys. And at that point, they decided to, there was such a good response to that, that they decided to, you know, um, bring back the Memphis Mafia as an organization for a while to interact with fans and such. And uh, after he retired, he pretty much did that. And he spent a lot of time on social media. He spent his entire yeah, I was I was going to I was actually going to come to that because he he yeah. did adopt social media quite well, didn't he? He did. You know, that man amazed me because he was a street kid from New York, basically, and got thrown out of about as many schools as he attended. But he was a self-taught man, and he just had a brilliant way of picking things up and becoming, you know, one of the best at them. And he did that with social media in a big way. Now, he used to, you know, he used to take some licks, you know, early on. There was a lot of stubborn... Uh, I shall say the word fanatic as opposed to fan because there's two different entities um, that used to, you know, give him hell over things he would say. But he was so honest about things and so blunt speaking that he and he had no patience. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. for a while there was rough going for him, but he stayed steadfast with it. And before long, people began to realize, you know, as time passed, more books came out, more information came out that, you know, Marty was telling the truth and he loved Elvis enough to respect the truth and say the truth. He used to uh, have a thing on uh, the Elvis Information Network, which was called Ask Marty, where people right. would send in questions and then he would a he would answer them. So that, that that was always a very interesting thing to read as well. Yeah, and he enjoyed it. He loved, you know, talking about his and their lives and Elvis and and keeping him uplifted, keeping the truth about Elvis. And uh, I mean, he would spend hours in here in the evening. He was still a night owl. And uh, I'd hear him in here clicking away, you know, at his computer. <laughs> and, you know, somebody would set him off and I'm thinking, oh, somebody's, you know, pulled his strings again. And then he'd walk away and cool off and come back and do it again the next day. <laughs> so, I, uh, I exchanged a few messages with him on Facebook from time to time. I, I always find him kind of straight shooting, you know, no, no nonsense. Just, yeah. you know, he'd call a spade a spade. Yeah, and he would say in very colorful language a lot of times just <laughs> <laughs> tell you exactly what he thought about something. So, that, that's but, the way to do it. That's the way to do it. Yeah, the thing about it is, though, is most people didn't see, which a lot of people didn't know, is he inside was a very, very soft, loving man. He, you know, if it was anything about a child or animals, he would just you know, melt. But the thing about it is too, 
he was very gruff on the outside, but if you managed to get past that exterior and he embraced you as a friend, he would die for you. He would do anything in the world for, you know, any of those guys uh, to the day he died. He was, yeah. you know, loyal. Uh, I think unless there's anything else you want to cover that we've missed We've covered a lot over the last, what, hour and, wow, hour and 12, 12 minutes. It, it doesn't seem yeah. like an hour and 12 minutes. I no, you get me talking and I'm liable to run you into a, you know, three-hour session or something. <laughs> well, I always love talking about Elvis. It's my favorite subject. Yeah. Well, I wish I had, you know, more firsthand experience for you in the early years, but I was... You know, you, you absorb a lot of things as a child. Like, you know, I can remember things. We lived at the Perugia Way House and in California a couple of times. And people would say, well, you know, on the group, they'll say, you, you were three or five years old. I said, listen, I was under the dining room table. I was always old for my age and I was nosy. So, <laughs> you know, I absorb things that people may not understand that I saw. And, you know, I get that all the time. They'll say, well, you were 10 years old when Elvis died. No, I was 17 when Elvis died. I was a yeah. year younger than the woman he was dating at the time. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Um, was, uh, I, was was, was Marty sorry, there? Uh, sorry, yeah. Sorry to cut across you. There's a little bit of delay. Uh, um, was Marty there the night the, the Beatles came to visit Elvis? Oh, yes. Yes, I was, too. Um, oh right do you remember much about that does martin remember oh, much about that he's yeah well you know the stories you've heard about you know them sitting there on the couch and it happened exactly like that you know they were all quiet and you know elvis finally said look if y'all are just gonna sit there and stare at me i'm going to bed and that kind of yeah. broke the ice you know but i do remember um uh, i can remember sitting on the couch and and mind you i was only like I guess it was what 64 65 which uh, uh, it was August 1965 five, right so I was five years old and I can remember sitting on the couch next to my mom and to my left on a couch that was kind of parallel to the wall I remember it was Paul and then I can remember what Ringo was wearing he had on a matching <laughs> like Jean, you know, Levi's jacket, you know, the short jackets and the pants to match. It was like white or beige. And um, it was John and then George, I believe. But the highlight of my night and of kind of my one of my life markers is that when I got ready to go to bed, I went to shake Paul McCartney's hand. And he's left handed, of course. I'm right handed. And so he said, no. And for some reason, he called me Shishi. I don't know why. But he <laughs> said, no, Shishi, this is how you do it. And he showed, he explained to me about shaking hands with a left-handed person versus a right-handed person and all that. And so, I mean, I can remember that like it was yesterday. And so for, you know, the rest of my life, I've loved Paul McCartney. <laughs> since wow, that that's, 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 that's some memory, isn't it? It is. I mean, and again, you know, that memory coupled with the Elvis whole thing, because we never realized, you know, what was going on as far as the, I mean, we knew he was famous. I can remember going to the movies and people just almost crushing me against the car or, you know, people we'd go up to the Elvis gate and, you know, you see all these strange faces peering in the windows of your car, you know, at night. 
And I'm like, this, this is not normal, you know, but it, it became <laughs> normal. <laughs> yeah, it but, became normal for Elvis, yeah. Yeah, and then so in hindsight, it, like I said, we were, all went on with our lives and did our own careers and whatever. And just since I've kind of taken this over since Daddy passed, that's kind of why I started doing it. You know, it's, he dedicated too much to it to just let it be abandoned. And so, you know, I took up the mantle of the Memphis Mafia, and that's what we're trying to do now. But now that I see and talk to people, I'm like, I have nothing to compare this to because there are no, even with the Beatles or Marilyn Monroe or, or anybody, there is no one else to compare what Elvis did or accomplished or was or is. And so it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that we were on the inside of that. We were on the inner circle of that. And it's, it's just enormous. It's, it's mind boggling to try to compare that to what people must feel. Because well, we have- I, I, I always say, you know, as much as I know about Elvis, I think I know about Elvis's life and career. I can only ever say from what I see from the outside, but you're telling me from the inside. Right. And so I'll often say to people like you or whoever, I'm like, what drew you to him? You know, I've seen snippets of it, like we discussed earlier. And, you know, and then looking at him one day at the pool, I thought, good Lord, this man is gorgeous. So, you know, I finally it finally dawned on me, you know, what all the women were going crazy about. But I'll often ask people that weren't on the inside. You know, what is it? What is it about Elvis Presley? that causes this loyal fervor you know for so many years afterwards and it, it's hard for people to explain there it is standpoint. yes it's, it's, it, it still is very very difficult to explain to yeah. put your finger on it yeah it is and especially in hindsight because at the time i think what it was is you know it was a groundbreaking and but we have all these new generations coming up that still find him fascinating so, you know, that's one of the reasons that I still do it is to keep the truth and integrity because there's a lot of people that may have spent one minute with him or, you know, may have had a date with him one night or three nights and they come out instead of just sharing their unique story, they act like, you know, they are the expert and <laughs> they will, you know, sometimes negate what other people that were with him a whole lot longer and meant a whole lot more to him have said. So, you know, that truth and integrity is very important and paramount for history. So would you like to share with everybody now what you're doing uh, in the uh, Elvis world these days? Uh, These days, uh, my sister and I, because my brother is a very private person, he's got a family that he's raising and he basically is just has a job that takes a lot of his time. So it's me and my sister, Angie, and we usually try during birthday week in Elvis and uh, the Elvis week during August uh, to get out, meet fans. We are trying to keep the legacy of the Memphis Mafia going as well, always with the truth and integrity of uh, what really happened with Elvis and them uh, by you know, talking to people, trying to uh, keep their memory alive 
We have started a line of merchandise uh, for the Memphis Mafia and make those uh, items like T-shirts and jackets and, uh, you know, the regular merch, as they say nowadays. Um, That way, you know, it keeps the memory alive and it keeps going and going and going. But we're trying to expand it into, I do own the, the trademark now for Memphis Mafia. So we're going to try and do a lot more projects, uh, maybe even uh, a book and maybe more audio visual programs like DVDs and such so that we can for the next generations, keep it alive for them and keep them, you know, informed of what Elvis did and accomplished. And how can people reach you? You do have a Facebook group, I believe. Yes, we do. It's uh, the official Memphis Mafia uh, group. It's real simple. And it's on Facebook. Just look up official Memphis Mafia. And just if you want to join, just apply there uh, with the little button. And if you want to order merchandise, uh, you can or talk to me. You can uh, email me at Shetty, S-H-E. D is in David, D is in David, I, the number two, at yahoo.com. And just put in the subject line Memphis Mafia, and I'll be sure and pick it out that way. It's easier for me to spot. And, uh, you know, we'll be glad to talk to you or, you know, show you our merchandise or uh, give you the calendar of, you know, where we might be. And we love talking to people and seeing people. Great. Great. Um, I'm just looking here now while you were saying that I've come across something which I'd like to share with everybody. It's what Marty said about Elvis. uh, And I'd like to close with it because I think it's quite poignant. Now, it's obvious they loved each other very, very much. Um, Marty, uh, Elvis thought a lot of Marty or he wouldn't have asked him to be his best man at the wedding. So that that to me is self-explanatory. But I just found this. And basically what Marty says was, My favorite memory of Elvis is when I went up to Graceland in 1971. I walked in the kitchen one day and he was leaning against the cabinet and he smiled when he saw me. So that's that's Mm. the thing that that's the thing that he remembers most about Elvis. And he also finishes by saying the best thing he ever gave me was his close friendship and his smile. Yeah, he loved him. I'm about to get a little emotional myself. Yeah, well, I, I, I must admit now, reading that, I had a little bit of a lump in my throat as well. So. <laughs> yeah. It, just just, just um, thinking about them both. I know. And and as I said earlier, you know, that that is a testimony to both Elvis and my father, because, as I said, not many people knew that side of my father. But my father was a very loving, very loyal man. And he loved Elvis Presley till the day he died. Elvis Presley shared the same attributes that your dad did. That's what I think. They were they were very much alike. Yeah, it's like no nonsense. If I want something done, I want it done. If you're going to do it, do it right. If you can't, say you can't do it and let somebody else do it. You know? uh, take care of business in a flash. Exactly. <laughs> there you go, Steve. So, Sherry, I'd like to thank you very much for sharing all these uh, reminiscences with and all this information with myself and our listeners. And uh, if you ever want to come back on again, you'll be most welcome. Oh, well, Steve, thank you so much. And thank you for the honor of uh, choosing to talk with me and being interested in what we do have to say, because it uh, it's a labor of love for us now. 
Yeah, and so is this. The, the, my, my YouTube channel, my podcast channel, it's all done just for the love of Elvis. Yeah, and uh, it keeps growing. And so hopefully we're doing our job correctly if it keeps going. True, very true. Thank you once again. Thank you, Steve. Have a blessed day. Thanks once again to Sherry Lacker for being my guest on the show today. If you want to contact me, you can do so by emailing ElvisTheUltimateFanChannel at gmail.com. I'd be delighted to read your comments and feedback. And if you'd like to make any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear in the future episodes, send those in too. You can also find me on YouTube and Facebook as Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and iHeartRadio, to name just a few. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will join me next time on Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel Podcast. Elvis has left the building. Thank you, and good afternoon. <laughs>